Let me pray for you today, and then we're going to hit the ground running in Mark chapter 12. So Lord, today I just give you thanks and honor and praise you, for you are so, so good to us. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of breakthrough for many of our, our listeners today in this podcast. Father, as as the word goes forth, may, may lives be changed, may minds be renewed, may hearts be transformed by the power of your word. God, as we just unfold this story, may you illuminate to us a treasure that you've you've got for us to see today. And may each person that listens to this broadcast find something unique from your voice and from your hand. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for this time, for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 14. I want to read you a story about a confrontation that Jesus had with some religious leaders. Now, you had two groups of people that Jesus dealt with often, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This particular one is going to be a confrontation with the Sadducees. And so let me go ahead and read it as it is and then spend some time today just talking to you about what we've read and why it's so very significant. Starting in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 14. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind, and he leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, and he didn't leave any offspring either. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no children. And last of all, this woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that they rise. Have you not read the book of Moses? In the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. All right. I'm not sure if any of you have ever just taken the time to go through this story before. Or if you went through the story, you wonder, "Ah, that's a theological conundrum. What in the world does that have to do with anything that's relevant to me today? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that perhaps it is incredibly relevant for you today. And especially because in this day, people are more likely, I think, to argue about the scripture than just about any time that I've been alive. It's not that the scriptures have never been up for debate before. It's just that people are really robust in their debating of the Word of God these days. So what's happening in this passage is that the Sadducees come to Jesus and they thought they had the perfect theological challenge to the entire notion or doctrine of the resurrection. Now, the quest for these people was eternal life. And Jesus points this out in the Gospel of John when he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them is eternal life. But these are they which testify of me, and yet you're unwilling to come to me. 
So in John, Jesus reveals to these religious leaders that he knows exactly what they're after. And it's not him. They want what what God can give them, perhaps, which is eternal life, which means you never die. You remember the rich young ruler one day came to Jesus, and what did he want to know? He wanted to know how to get eternal life. And this is the part of the problem with people in the earth today, is that our desires are misplaced. Jesus begins the gospel with these words, the gospel of John, with the words, what do you seek? His first words in the gospel of John. And the first words recorded of Jesus after the resurrection to Mary Magdalene are, who do you seek? Or whom do you seek? Our journey, our quest for God in this life always seems to begin with a what, but ends with a who. It all ends with him, with Jesus. So here in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18, as we've read, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, come to Jesus and they begin with this phrase, Teacher, Moses wrote for us. Now stop there for just a second. What they're talking about here is the Pentateuch. And they believe that this this record that Moses wrote was a deeply timeless spiritual writing, but with a present contemporary application, which is why they said he wrote it for us or for them specifically. Now, what they're about to bring up and what they bring up in this story is a marital law with these traditions saying that if a married woman who is widowed, had no children, uh, uh, suddenly she's widowed, her husband dies, well, she was to marry the deceased husband's brother so that he might build his brother's house. So in the example here, they tell a story to illustrate their point. And in this story, here's this one woman, her husband dies. But he's got seven brothers. And so they all marry her, but they all die after marrying her. So the question is, which one is she actually married to in the resurrection? In other words, when everybody comes back to life, whose wife is she? Now remember that their quest was eternal life. And if there's eternal life, then nobody dies. And if nobody dies, then we don't have this problem. So to them, the resurrection is somewhat pointless. Because death and separation seem to create all kinds of difficulties. See, eternal life would eliminate these difficulties. But to have a resurrection after death, they don't think that's even a valuable teaching at all. I'm pretty sure that the religious leaders confronting Jesus thought they were being brilliant, clever, and profound and that their hypothetical case here clearly exposed what they thought was the absurdity of the doctrine of the resurrection. So the argument seems to indicate that this life creates so many anomalies, so many problems, so many issues, that to perpetuate this beyond the grave, it's just going to magnify all of our present issues. And the woman in the example would be claimed by all seven men, So then, what is this crazy afterlife that Jesus is even talking about if indeed the dead are resurrected? So to them, this was a riddle without any good solution. Now, in their minds, they had caught Jesus in the chains of a theological dilemma where there is no escape. 
Well, Jesus is about to make two emphatic statements at the beginning and at the end of his response. And at the beginning is the first thing he says to them is essentially, you're mistaken. Or literally, he's saying, you're wrong. And when he gets to the end in verse 27, verse 24, he says, you guys are wrong. You guys are mistaken. And when he gets to the end of verse 27, he says, you are quite wrong or you are greatly mistaken or in some cases, gravely mistaken. So he starts out by telling them they're wrong and then he doubles down on it at the, at the end. And what he's going to say in the middle is so brief and so short, and you're like, man, Jesus, you really could have elaborated on this so much, but he doesn't really need to, because what he says is plenty. What he what he does here, and I love what he does, because he doesn't compliment these people on their cleverness, and he doesn't validate their question and their example. This is not a question of curiosity these people are asking. This is a question of challenge. And isn't that we have what we have filling the earth today? People aren't asking questions of God uh, of curiosity. In other words, wanting to grow, wanting to understand, wanting to know more. Now, people come to God with questions of challenge. In other words, if you are the Christ, then what about this? If the word of God is true, then what about this? And so the earth is filled today with the spirit of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who ask questions of challenge without any intention of changing their predisposed opinion or their preset opinion. And now they, they're just asking questions for the, for the purpose of somehow catching the scriptures or catching God in a conundrum he can't get out of. So let's examine Jesus' response here and see whether or not we can find something powerful for our lives today. Jesus goes on here to say that they're wrong because they're ignorant. And isn't that kind of a refreshing pushback from the gracious Prince of Peace, the Son of God? He, he pushes back here toward people who are steeping with religious pride. And I kind of like it. Verse 24, Jesus here begins to give reasons for their ignorance. The first thing he says is, you don't know the scriptures. And the second thing he says is, you don't know the power of God. So let's examine these two things here for a second. Their ignorance of the scriptures and the ignorance of the power of God mirrors two fundamental issues that you and I face today, both inside and out of the church. People are ignorant of the scriptures and they're ignorant of the power of God. In other words, they really don't know what God has said in his word and they don't know what God can do. So I want to set aside verse 25 just for a moment. Don't worry, we'll come back to it. And I want to talk a little bit about their ignorance. When Jesus came into conversations and arguments with religious leaders, he regarded the scripture as the arbiter in the debate. When they came to Jesus with questions, he would often respond with a counter question. And in those counter questions, much like he did with the devil in the wilderness, he referred to scripture. For example, when a lawyer asked Jesus about eternal life, Jesus replied, what is written in the law? When the Pharisees asked Jesus about his views on divorce, he said, have you not read? Well, the case is the same here. Jesus says, have you not read in the book of Moses? So he's going to point to the scripture. Of course, these guys have read the book of Moses. Matter of fact, they thought they were experts in the book of Moses, but they misunderstood what they had read. And their misunderstanding was so significant that it moved from mere misunderstanding 
into complete ignorance. So Jesus goes on to quote out of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. It's the story of the burning bush. And in this instance, God describes himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, who have all died by this point. Now, these designations carry in them the implication of the resurrection, for God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Now, you are created as a spirit, soul, and body to exist united together for all eternity. But there are transformations and regenerations that take place, for the old things are passed away and all things become new. And this is why we can say this body isn't you, not the real you. This is a temporary earth suit vehicle for your spirit and your soul. And the Bible consistently talks about old things passing away, where God says things like, I'll take a heart of stone out of you and replace it with a heart of flesh. Uh, Things like you have the mind of Christ, right? Instead of leaning on your own understanding. That's a renewed mind. We don't think alone. We don't feel alone. And we certainly don't uh, act alone. You and I are co-laborers with Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit to live and move and have our being God within us. Not just with us, but within us. And this is what gives you and I the ability to do the works of Jesus. It's the power of God. For if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then he will quicken or make alive your mortal body. So the Spirit is meant to have an impact on the flesh. Yet we can see outward we're aging in this flesh. Paul put it like this. Outward we are wasting away, but inward we are being renewed day by day. There is a bodily resurrection, but the resurrection of your body is not going to look like the body you have now. Now, there are going to be some significant improvements. You're resurrected into a glorified state, much like you see Jesus in the book of Revelation. See, Jesus is glorified in the book of Revelation, and his body takes on the same limitless capacity that the Spirit carries. And even in his glorified state, though, John recognizes Jesus as Jesus. So you will be recognized as you. But you know what? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, from now on we regard no man according to the flesh. He begins to realize, what if we could begin to recognize each other by the Spirit here and now? What if I could see beyond the costume of this aging, decaying flesh and see who you are by the Spirit? Because He says, we used to know Jesus this way. Now we don't know him this way. No, we know him by his spirit. That's why we know he's with us and within us, alive within us now, not just off in some other realm of heaven and not present here and active here in this physical state here on earth. No, Jesus is very much here right now. Hey, can I just tell you, there is a new and resurrected and glorified and pain-free and disease-free body waiting for you there in that realm. Now, we continue to pray for the sick here. Why? Because Jesus taught us on earth as it is 
in heaven. And so we contend for the reality of healing wholeness of heaven's power to show up and manifest here on the earth. And so we do that by praying for the sick, believing that God is going to do miracles for us. And often those things happen. And it testifies to the reality that there is more than just this physical life that we have in our future. There is an eternity to regard. So there is a bodily resurrection, but you're resurrected into a glorified state, much like you see Jesus in Revelation. Now, the testimony of Jesus to God here, being the God of the living, spoke the reality to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though having died in this life, they're very much alive. For God was still fulfilling his promise to them. God is attaching his, his very essence and identity to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God, being the God of the living, would not do that if they continued to be dead. The book of Hebrews bears this out. Uh, calls the patriarchs of faith strangers and exiles on this earth. And their vision extended beyond this life and into eternity. The Bible says in Hebrews, they looked for a city who had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They got a vision that went beyond just this mere physical life. They had come to know the nature and the character of God. And for them, they had come to an awareness that death was not the end. You guys remember the story of Enoch. The Bible says that Enoch walked with God so closely that one day God said something to him akin to, hey, we're closer to my house than yours. Why don't you just come home with me? That's my paraphrase. But essentially, the Bible says that Enoch and God walked so closely together, one day he just disappeared. He was just gone. He just moved from this life into the next. Elijah had this same thing happen. He was caught up in a, in a whirlwind, in, and he never even saw death, not in the way we ever see it. Enoch and Elijah both seemed to completely move right past the doorway of death and straight into the presence of God. That's kind of amazing. So there is something after this life that transcends anything you and I have ever known here. But you're here for a purpose. You're here for a reason, to commune with God, to have a relationship with God, and to point people to Jesus Christ so that they know uh, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. I go back to the story here. The bigger problem these Sadducees had was not just their ignorance of the scriptures, but they had no faith in the power of God. These guys thought if there was any life beyond this, it would be exactly like the one we've been living all along. That somehow you would be resurrected into the exact same kind of life you've always been living. It never seemed to occur to the Sadducees that life beyond this life is an entirely different life. An entirely different realm. An entirely different order of being where the problems that you and I have become familiar with on earth are a non-issue. The Sadducees did what many people do today, and that is that they underestimated the power of God. Resurrection is not merely materialistic, and resurrection is not resuscitation. You're not merely going to resume your former life and be limited to your former functions. The Apostle Paul asked the church in Corinth 
He said this, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish man, Paul says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body which is to be, but a kernel or a seed of wheat or grain. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown as a physical body. It is raised as a spiritual body. And eternally, the body completely and totally reflects the spirit. And that's so important to understand. Jesus gives barely a hint to that new life when he says, when they rise from the dead, they do not marry. They're like the angels in heaven. In Luke's account of the same story, Jesus amplifies this idea, and this is what he said. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are accounted worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So, in that account, the elaboration on it tells us a few things. Jesus divides this age from that age. But there's really a really important phrase that Jesus uses here, and it's the phrase accounted worthy. And this accounting speaks to an external impartation of grace or worthiness. In other words, your worthiness to inherit eternal life comes from outside of you, doesn't come from within you directly. You and I, in and of ourselves, aren't worthy to inherit eternal life. It is Christ who makes us worthy. In other words, someone else outside of you observes and applies a worthiness to you. That's what it means to be accounted. So thank you, Jesus, for accounting us worthy of eternal life. It's the grace of Christ alone that accounts us worthy of eternal life. Eternity in the realm of heaven will be populated by new creation beings living in new life under new conditions. Humans, he says, will be like angels. In other words, mortals will have become immortal. The Apostle Paul said everything that's corruptible goes into the ground, and we are raised imperishable. And apparently, the need to multiply and fill the earth, it's no more. It's, it's done. We've, we've accomplished the task. And apparently the need to marry, as we know it conventionally here on earth, is no more. Marriage in this life is an illustration of covenant, a boot camp of relationship, a crucible of transformation where you learn uh, the value of other-centered, self-giving uh, love. We know that in heaven, love will never cease and never end, for God is love. But apparently in heaven... Human sexuality, as we've come to know it here, in other words, the physical pleasure being one of the highest pleasures we can experience, that's transcended. And relationships as we know them now are transcended both in character and expression. Uh, the Bible describes us as one spirit. And that becomes fully realized within the realm of heaven. All of this newness, new life, new conditions, relationships, 
so much deeper and so much more profound than anything we know now. And all of this is possible because of the power of God. And the religious leaders were ignorant of the reality of what is possible because they just didn't know the power of God. And you know what? Many religious people remain the same way today. The Bible says, according to Jesus, all things are possible with God. And yet he goes on to declare that all things are possible to those who believe. It's your trust in the goodness and the grace of God that makes you limitless and gives you the ability to display His power and glory. It's your trust in the love of the Father that makes it possible for you to display the ministry of reconciliation so profoundly that you even have the ability to love your enemies, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who despitefully use you, and to do good to those who mistreat you. The universe isn't a closed system governed by natural laws. If that's your limit, there will be no room for God. Early science held a virtue was to distinguish between the natural law and divine will or movement. Dividing the physical law and the metaphysical was held in high regard in the academic world, for there was a natural law and the observable process, and yet there was some latitude in the old days for allowing for some spiritual things in areas where natural laws couldn't be discerned. Even Isaac Newton wrote that thy diurnal rotations of the planets could not be derived from gravity, but require a divine arm to impress upon them. The more we try to explain the phenomena of this world in natural laws means that we take a pride in edging God out of his own creation. But what we come to discover as we look into things like quantum science is this incredible reality, and that is everything is spiritual. And the Bible says everything exists in him. Everything that we can perceive with our senses that appears to be all there is, is merely a shadow and a fraction of the greater spiritual reality that is not distant, but just different. It's not a distant space, but merely a different realm that separates you from heaven. If right now our earthly eyes were to surrender to see into the realm of the spirit, what the Bible calls the unseen eternal, we would recognize that all the cares and the problems of this life are but a shadow and vapor. And we would see and know and realize that the things of the Spirit are the greater reality. And all that we have chased after and sought for and pursued of this world was just a distraction from seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And when we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Everything else, all of the cares and concerns are dealt with, and all that we feel we are lacking suddenly is added to our lives. It's only when we seek first the kingdom that we find life more abundantly. For to seek the kingdom is to seek the king, and when we seek, we will find when we seek with all of our heart. And what we find when we arrive is the illumination or revelation that in him is where we have always belonged. God chose you to be in Christ from before the foundation of the world, then he is our home. And in him, we truly live and move and have our being. The love of God propelled him to give himself to this temporal existence with its beauty and its ugliness and its joy and its sorrow and its pleasure and its pain. And as God stooped, 
to become Emmanuel, God with us, we may have inadvertently lowered our gaze and limited our vision to believe that this is all there is. So then we come to understand that it's not eternal life that is greater than resurrection, but it's quite the opposite. For eternal life would give us nothing more than more time, more money, and more problems. Resurrection, though, frees us from a lower existence and raises us to be seated with him in heavenly places. The mystical reality of this truth is that we are actually, in some ways, by the Spirit, there now. We may walk on this earth in our perception, but we are seated with Him in Spirit. Which one do you perceive more? So your perception will greatly impact your existence here and now. But listen, you're here for a purpose and here for a reason. It's not just by accident. You're alive right now. Co-labor with God and commune with the Lord to fulfill the purpose that God has for you in this life. And you'll discover true abundance, true satisfaction in the presence of the Lord. You can write to us here at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. And the best way to support the ministry is to go to VanderbushMinistries.com and click the Give button on the home screen. Listen, from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries, we pray for you, we bless you, we appreciate each and every one of you. And if you write in to us, listen, we will read every letter that you send, every email that you send, and we bless, pray, and pray for, and continue to stand for you that God will continue to do miracles in your life and guide you every single moment of every single day. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.